You're listening to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other, that stays updated with the most recent tips and advice on how to make it in America and become a successful resident or fellow in the speciality of your dreams. Dr. Alonso Osorio is board certified and residency trained in both emergency and family medicine and will be bringing you 20 years of his personal experiences, struggles and motivation. We'll be chatting with people like you to talk about the lessons they've learned along their personal path, how to make an impact and how we can all benefit from it. Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show. Hello, guys, and here we are with episode number 14, and I have Dr. Chase DiMarco. I'm extremely excited to have Dr. DiMarco because uh, currently our followers and listeners are remarkably interested in getting to know how to approach and how to take on taking a step one and a step two and eventually a step three. And the reason why I invited uh, Chase is because he specializes on medical mnemonics and he owns a podcast that is called The Medical Mnemonist. And currently he lives here in Florida in the same state as I am. And he is a physician, PhD candidate on uh, education psychology. And he owns a book that is called Read This Before Medical School. And he is here to help us somehow overcome the fear of what it's like to take uh, a step one. And, you know, I know that we foreign medical grads are not very acquainted on how to take a standardized testing and it's fearsome. We still do paper testing and classroom testing and we don't attend this Prometric testing centers, etc. So we're have to happy to have you and just tell us more about you and how this passion was born. Hi Alonzo, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so uh, to clarify, MD PhD candidate, I'm almost done with both, but not quite done with either. So thank you for saying doctor ahead of time. So I really started by having a lot of difficulties myself with testing and with the process of studying for the board exams, namely the USMLE or COMLEX if you're a DO student. But that got me really thinking, I'm having all these troubles. A lot of fellow students were having troubles and I wanted to find a better way to approach my studies and see where my weaknesses were really. And I think that's a, a big issue is students don't learn how to learn and how to really point out where your weaknesses are and study on them. So that's kind of what got me into the, the podcast realm and interviewing the best experts in these fields eventually coming out with the book, Read This Before Medical School, as a, a way to share this information with the audience, with people that would like to know more about this and benefit their own studies. So the book is called Read These Before Medical School. Uh, can you go over that really quickly to see what uh, your, this awesome publication is all about and where we can find it and purchase it? Sure. So it's basically broken down into four different sections. And actually, if you go to the Medical Nemesis podcast, we did a breakdown of these, like a mini series. So you can hear kind of audio experts from the book if you want to learn more about it before thinking about purchasing it. 
But the first stage or the first part of the book is really about some basic study skills, overview of them, how to implement them, what they are, and also stuff on work-life balance and remaining healthy and preventing burnout. And then the second part, we go into specific test-taking preparation and styles and things to look out for. And you might have heard of bits and pieces of these from different instructors or different YouTube videos, but I've never at least seen it put in a very condensed and systematic way as we tried to here. We actually have a method in the book, me and my two co-authors, and we call it the med edge method to give you an edge on your medical studies. And then the third part focuses more on accelerated learning, which is a lot of topics that I also cover in the Medical Nemesis podcast, namely speed reading techniques, uh, visual mnemonics, memory palaces, these ex- advanced mnemonic techniques, not just acronyms, because a lot of people struggle with them. They're very weak when it comes to uh, long-term memories. You usually remember them for an exam and then you forget about them afterwards, except for a couple of raunchy ones maybe, but more the visual mnemonics and advanced memory techniques will stick with you longer. And then the last section is more about self-assessment and monitoring because you don't know where you are or where you were or where you're going if you don't really have a system in place to monitor that and a record to keep yourself honest and not just say, "Ah, yeah, I feel like I learned that, but maybe you didn't really learn it as well as you thought. So you can find Read This Before Medical School on pretty much any online store on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. We also have a free PDF that people can download that's like an essentials of guide. If you go to freemeded.org slash medstudent, one word, medstudent. And that just gives another kind of summation of some of the tools that we cover in the book if you want to check that out before considering buying it. Yeah, I personally downloaded it and I found it really helpful and, and went over this. I mean, I'm already done with my studies, but you know, I find it remarkably useful. And I, I wish I had this kind of tool to guide me through the process. So since my target population of listeners and my niche is foreign medical graduates, most of us are not native English speakers. And some of them have it as a second language. In my personal case, when I came to America, you know, I'm, I'm still not completely fluent or smooth at my English skills, but I feel that language is a barrier. How do you think the limitation of reading in English that takes me a long time? For example, I'm a very good audible listener instead of a reader. It could take me three times as long to read a book than to listen to a book. So what kind of tips can you give a foreign that is non dominant on the language before they even submerge themselves on taking the first chance at having a grade at the USMLE? Step one, for Mm, example. (laughs) That's that's an interesting question. Since I currently only speak poor English myself and not bilingual, (laughs) I learned a little Spanish back in high school, but I don't remember it anymore. I need to learn that again. But I would just kind of assume anyway that a lot of the learning and reading speed and comprehension concerns are going to be the same whether you're speaking in a second language or first language as far as a few points go. And one of them would be the actual skills that you're using when reading. Most of us read in a very old-fashioned systematic way, kind of the same way we've been reading since we're 9, 10, 11 years old, and we're never taught to read differently. And that's where some of the reading skills and speed reading techniques can come in. I would think though I don't have personal experience with this, that they would also work uh, similarly for people with English as a second language. And it's doing certain things like not subvocalizing. This is when you're kind of reading in your head as you're reading visually. And that'll slow down because you can only read in your head about 
the same speed that you speak. So you're going to be limited to that speed. Speed reading is a little bit more, I don't want to say skimming, but kind of sort of the easiest way to explain it without going into a whole long lecture about it and not going back to a previous um, sentence or paragraph once you've passed it. You need to understand it well enough and be confident in your understanding, not second guessing it. So not backtracking. And there's a couple other strategies depending on how much time you dedicate to these skills. We do cover a lot of them in the book and in previous podcast episodes. So if someone wants to check that out, I had uh, an episode with Abby Marks Beal on note-taking and speed reading. I had the fastest reader in the Guinness Book World of Records, Howard Berg. He was in an early episode, I think episode five and six. So the podcast is a great way for people to become more introduced to the concepts anyway. And then you can learn some of the actual techniques from the book, or even I think we have a couple of charts in the free PDF that they can download too. And that should help them read a little bit faster. We're not looking for thousands of words per minute, but if the average US reader anyway, reading English is about 200, 250 words per minute, I'm not sure how that translates into other languages, then we could probably easily get up to four, five, 600 words per minute. Even that is doubling, tripling our reading speed, and that can significantly reduce the time it requires to read the material or read a board exam question. So based on what you just said, obviously, sometimes the stems of the USMLE uh, questions are quite large. And for me, I wasted a lot of time reading through that. And most of the stem is garbage. You only need some specific kind of pointers throughout the questions that will eventually lead to the answer. And it's about getting used to it. I would say, obviously, as a foreign medical grad, non-English speaker from Latin America, for me, it was first getting used to the language. I would highly recommend, like we have said, come to America if you don't speak the language, get acquainted with the usage of the medical English. As you're going into medical school and you're studying throughout medical school, purchase your books in English and try to read in English like I did and read articles, journals in English. And, you know, if you have the chance and you're blessed to be able to take a vacation here or there speak English with friends over the phone or in minor interactions, that's going to be fantastic because once you start studying for the USMLE, you'll realize soon that you're going to get a headache uh, while trying to retranslate to understand. So you have to read in English, understand in English, speak in English. And I think that's a significant cognitive process that is rather complex that I'm not an education psychologist, but I bet that there is some pathophysiologic or physiologic explanation about how we, the brain connects. Anyway, I don't want to go deeper into the science of education, but uh, Chase, what was your motivation to become a medical knowledge entrepreneur? Because you're not only a, uh, or going to be a doctor, but you have so many projects and so many things going on that I'm like overwhelmed by how, what's your thought process like? Yeah, that's confusing. Let's see. So I think specifically for medical education was really my first semester in med school. And I was kind of disillusioned with the whole process. I did not appreciate what was being done and how I was being taught. I didn't really enjoy it. I didn't feel like it was matching how I learned very well. And fair enough, a lot of instructors in medical education aren't really educated in education. They don't necessarily know how to teach. They just know the material and they're trying to disseminate it to you, trying to distill it down for the student. So 
I was always thinking there's got to be a better way. I finished my master's in that educational psychology degree my first semester too. So some of the research I was doing to finish up that degree was really the same time that I was starting to learn medicine and seeing, I don't like the way this is set up. I don't like the way this is being taught. Uh, there's got to be a better way to do it. So I started freemeded.org really just to coalesce a lot of resources out there. I didn't have time to create my own. I didn't have the depth of knowledge to create my own materials, but I wanted to consolidate materials out there so students could go there, learn, supplement their research, their education, their in-class studies with materials there. But as I continued on, I always planned on really making my own content. And I came out with an online course just to, to experiment with some of the videography and the course design and everything. Uh, I think that was the end of 2017, 18. 2018, I believe, which can be found on the Free Med Ed YouTube page. Um, it's a free microbiology course in bacteriology. It was my first attempt at using that kind of software and designing a course. So, but I think it came out all right for a first attempt. And then I started learning about these accelerated learning techniques, probably the beginning of my fourth year in med school. So currently I've taken the past year off to really explore these other educational avenues and the podcast and the book. But the end of my fourth year, I was studying in the library and came across a book on speed reading for dummies. And I kind of thought speed reading was a hoax. And I think a lot of people do think that because there are a lot of hoax kind of companies out there that'll train you, but not really train you. They just sort of take your money and there's not a lot of value to them. So I purchased or I took out that book and started learning a little about it. I started researching more online, found a couple of courses that coincided with those techniques and medical mnemonics or mnemonics in general. And I said, how can I make these stronger for medical studies? And at Got the it. time there's uh, there's Picmonic and there's Sketchy, which are very useful and they're a great um, representation of what you can do. But at the same time, I knew that. I had trouble remembering their content because it wasn't personal to me. I didn't understand some of the associations they made. And every memory champion I've interviewed and every cognitive psychology expert I've interviewed through the Medical Anonymous podcast agrees that you should always make your own material. Don't use wow. someone else's notes. Don't use someone else's visual mnemonics. I mean, you can use it as a basis because it's time consuming, so save some time. But especially for ones you're having trouble with, you need to make your own because that's the only way it's going to stick. Wow. When you mentioned medical mnemonics, when I came to this country and I started opening this book called a USMLE First Aid or, you know, thousands of those that are out there, I see that um, American medical students and in general in the US, you guys use mnemonics everywhere. Can you tell us more about medical mnemonics and why you call yourself the medical mnemonist? Sure. So I want to clarify first off that until a few years ago, mnemonics weren't used too much. And the only ones you will find, and I think this is a lot in first aid too, I'm not sure, I haven't seen the last couple of years editions, is uh, acronyms. And acronyms are okay for short periods of time trying to remember lists and stuff like that. But usually they are not personalizable or because you're using someone else's, it's not personal to you. And I always struggled with those as well. So I kind of separate acronyms and those types of mnemonics from visual mnemonics. And this comes back to, again, Sketchy and Picmonic being very popular in this realm for creating content that students can use and get ideas from and study from. But I really wanted to teach 
students the process. I always focus all my materials, whether it be study skills, board exam skills, or visual mnemonics training on teaching the process, not the product. I don't teach content. I teach you how to develop these skills and how to become better at these um, techniques yourself, because that's the only way that it's really going to benefit you for the long term. And it's just much more efficient. And it's a skill that can be used pretty much in in everything, everywhere. So the medical anemonist was really a way to say, hey, come learn these specifically medical-based mnemonics trainings and help your board exam studies, help your in-class studies. And there are different techniques for remembering people's names and faces and stuff that could be useful in the clinical setting. If you want to remember all of the uh, staff around you or your patients, there's just a lot of ways these techniques can be useful in clinical medicine. But I focus mostly on teaching them for the academic needs because you can always translate these tools later on into other needs. Right. So for our listeners, I want to clarify that the term mnemonics is the study and development of systems for improving and assisting the memory, correct? Correct. And I have a bad memory. I know this. And most memory champions actually say the exact same thing. You can listen to any of my interviews or other interviews with like Alex Mullen and Nelson Dellis and other memory athletes. And they always say, I had a really crappy memory. That's why I started learning these techniques. And then they go on to win championships. So if they can do it, I think any of us can do it too. We can learn these and use them for academic and you know life purposes. And Chasing's uh we are not used to take this as standard adaptation. What would be a good way for a foreign medical graduate, you know, or an international medical graduate to start studying the quote American way quote? I am not really sure that there is an American way. I kind of disagree with anyone saying that there's a particular way this way or that way, because you really need to make it your way. That's the, the personalizability of studying is going to be the most efficient way. If you try to study with someone else's quote unquote way, then it's not personal to you. It's not going to be maximized to its most efficient you know, and, and time sensitive manners for you. A lot of people will say, find the smartest person in your class and copy them. And I say that's wrong. Find the smartest class and learn some of the basic techniques that they use or resources they use, but also fine tune them and make them personal to you. So if you study someone else's way, or if you're worried about other people's study methods, how much material they're getting through compared to you, what their exam scores are compared to you, you're really just adding extra stress. And there's nothing about that that is going to help you. Learning their way is not going to help you. You need to learn your way. Uh, I think you need to start off, first off, with clarifying your goals. Do you want to do good in class? Do you want to do good on your board exams? Sometimes these two don't correlate. So you might have to choose one versus the other. Do you want to have a lot of extracurriculars and really meet and network with other individuals in either academics or in the hospital setting or have better patient communication skills? Whatever your goals are, you need to then use those goals to clarify what your study patterns, what your techniques, what your really your tactics are going to be for the rest of your academic career. And then also focus on slow and consistent abilities and increases because this isn't going to happen all at once. It doesn't matter what it is. It's going to be a slow and constant progression that gets you where you want to be. There's a lot of people that ask me, what kind of learning do you recommend me to do? Dr. Osorio, do I go into the library and sit down for six to eight hours reading books nonstop, taking my own notes, 
I don't think that I'm that kind of person. I am not that disciplined. That's how I did it myself. But other ones say, I, I don't have the discipline to sit down. So I'm just going to go to Ka Kaplan and pay five seven thousand dollars and take these courses and they made me go and they give me the book and everything is fed to me and, and i just kind of go from there and other people just i don't know uh, it's a remarkable variability in the experiences of what i have seen out there it's really difficult to say because again everyone's going to be different but i don't think that going to the library and studying for six to eight hours a day works for me i know i am not disciplined enough to do that for those that are if it works for you, keep it. If it doesn't, you have to find other methods that'll work better for you. And that can be from a variety of resources and a variety of methods. Really what we're doing when trying to get across different study techniques and different mnemonic techniques is give you tools. Tools can be used in a multitude of different ways in a multitude of different scenarios. The only way you're going to find out what works for you is by trying a few different ones out and in different scenarios too. Don't just try it once and it didn't work there and then never come back to it. I know from some of the material that I've covered in the past and actually two great interviews I did, one with Dr. Anders Ericsson, who was the author of Peak. And he, That's a fantastic book, by the way, on performance. Is. I love that book. And he was a great interview. And his concept is deliberate practice. And some of the things that that covers is, you know, again, you need a goal. You need to get out of your comfort zone. You need to try some different things. You need to maybe try some techniques you haven't tried before, study a little longer, maybe study less long, but more uh, challenging material. Don't do things that are easy for you. Passively rereading your notes, highlighting, watching videos, all these passive learning styles are great for initial reference, but you don't want to do it again. You're not going to retain any more information from it. Then he also says that you need to eventually hit a, a point where you don't necessarily know or can find all of your mistakes, all of your weaknesses, and finding a mentor, someone that can point those out for you is another great way to reach a higher step of expertise because that's what the book is about. It's on expertise. I think it's called Peak the Science of Expertise. I forget the subtitles. So deliberate practice is a great way of really gaining small incremental steps towards mastery of a skill. And then uh, WHOOP is another one. It stands for Wish Outcome Obstacle Plan. And that was another interview that I conducted with Dr. Daniel Sadawi Kanafka. Uh, he used this technique with anesthesia residents. And basically, it's a planning method where you kind of find out what your wish is. Where do you want to be? What, what's your goal? Where do you ultimately want to be? What is the you know, objective of this? Is it to just pass a class? Is it to become a doctor? Is it to be healthier and live longer? Is, whatever that outcome that you're really going for, make sure that is clear. Then what are the obstacles that can arise? Maybe right now my wish is to go to the library because my outcome is to learn new material. Obstacles might be I'm lazy today or I have no energy or I get a flat tire. You know, those are real life examples of obstacles that can arise. And then make a plan ahead of time. Plan for how you will attack all these. That way, if an obstacle arises, you're not going to stress out last minute and not know what to do. You already have a plan in place. You can use that for any kind of obstacle, whether that be, I failed on this exam. Now, what am I going to do? I'm not going to freak about it. I'm going to figure out what I did wrong, find out how to correct it. Or you know, any kind of obstacle that can arise for, for your testing studies, for actually sitting down for what scores you received. Just a ton of ways you can use these two techniques to really 
approach your education differently and learn different techniques and find what your personal way is going to be. Got it. One particular thing is, uh, for example, I had a guest during my last episode, episode number 13, and he had spoken that many schools across the world are training physicians or medical students to be, not to be doctors. I mean, they'll obtain a doctorate degree in medicine, but not to be a good clinician that they train them towards just passing a step one and a step two, and they just gear them towards that. And they become great test takers, but there is no soul or any substance behind this this person that has a huge percentile score. So one of the comments that he made is that he feels and perceives, this is not the opinion of the USMLE, by the way, he feels and perceives that the reason why they're doing a pass-fail a score for a step one is to put more emphasis in those people that have more clinical knowledge and clinical skills. Uh, do you think uh, these recent changes in USMLE are going to be a dramatic change in the way we approach uh, education in the U.S. or the way we learn in the U.S.? Such a complicated and very talked about subject right now. Um, I definitely think it's a big change. We can expect some big things. It probably won't happen all at once, but I wrote a blog post about this maybe a year or two ago, and I think I reinforced this idea in the book, Read This Before Medical School, that to the best of the research I've conducted on it, and I'm far from an expert, it doesn't seem to be any correlation between higher USMLE scores and better patient outcomes or better physicians or higher rankings in patient care. The only correlation that I've ever seen, and please let me know if anyone finds something different because I'd be interested to know, is that a higher USMLE step one score is going to indicate a higher board exam score later on. So it's saying that if you're a good test taker, you're a good test taker. Well, that doesn't help us. It doesn't provide any insight into the clinician as a whole. So I do think that making it a pass-fail is going to be a huge change. Obviously, we're going to see a lot of companies kind of nervous and probably fall and crumble because they base it all on step one. And you had to before. I don't disagree with them being there. There was a need. Schools don't necessarily teach to the test. And before, they probably should have a little bit more because that was a big part of where you're going to spend the rest of your life. And hopefully you can learn the skills that you need during residency. That was kind of the mentality that was prevalent. I don't think that's the best mentality to have, but it was one that was necessary for that. Now that it's more pass fail, students and, and the schools themselves can focus on making students good clinicians, stronger clinicians, improved leadership skills and uh, communications with their patients. And that is going to lead to better patient outcomes, much more so than being able to answer sometimes really mundane and useless information on, for instance, the step one score. So this is going to be an interesting change. And I think it's going to really indicate even more so that students should learn to not really worry so much about the content, the exam content. So all these different Q banks and stuff out there are still going to have some relevance, but less relevant because you don't need to necessarily memorize every single little thing that's going to be on a board exam. You need to know the process of learning. You need to know how to maximize your own learning abilities and find the tools that work best for you. So that's kind of something that I try to cover in my material. So maximize your own learning abilities and implement good tools that work for you. That's a good teaching point. How do you think uh, your learning strategies will benefit 
us in succeeding at passing a step one as of now with a higher grade? Or how do you think this is going to help you overcome any fear during the test taking? Have you seen that this method implementation by yourself helped you through medical school to obtain better scores and better grades? Or how did affect your performance in general? So that's an interesting question and one that I struggle with finding a good answer for because like I said earlier, I didn't learn these skills early on. <laughs> I didn't learn them until about my fourth year of medical school. So I was already out of basic sciences. I was finishing up my elective rotations. I had all of my core rotations and all that stuff out of the way by the time I really delved into this. I, I tried to learn these before med school and it didn't make sense and I couldn't find someone to explain it for me. So after about two or three weeks, I stopped it, which is what a lot of students probably did that tried to learn something like this before. There wasn't good instruction out there before. There weren't good examples until Sketchy and Picmonic started creating them. So I finally became a little more proficient towards the, the beginning of my fourth year. And really this past year, I've been emphasizing the different techniques that can be used more directed towards medicine. Because there's a lot of resources out there for other mnemonics techniques. If you want to learn long strings of numbers, thousands of numbers, you can use this technique. There are ways to, like I said, remember faces and remember names. There are ways to consolidate different types, network different um, sequential orders of things in like a journey method. So A goes to B goes to C, but really directing these just to medical studies and how to teach others the specific skills for mnemonics and medicine hasn't been something that, at least to my knowledge, completed. No one else explains how to use these techniques very well. So that's kind of where I've been focusing on. And I hope through the interviews I've been conducting and through the tutoring sessions I've been giving that other students are learning a lot from these techniques. I'm trying to maximize my own abilities too. I'm constantly learning. I'm not an expert. I'll never say I'm an expert in pretty much anything. Unless it's like advertising material, then you got to say just because it looks good on paper, I guess. But I'm always learning. I'm always maximizing my skills. And I do believe that these are going to benefit my future studies and academic um, achievements and clinical achievements too. I just don't have any objective data to give you from personal experience at this point in time. So it's a long way of saying I don't know, but I think so. <laughs> okay, great. I see also that you do a lot of consulting. How does consulting work if somebody wants to get a hold of Dr. or future Dr. Chase DiMarco, MD, PhD? Yeah, so that's something I just recently started about the past month, and I've had a couple of sessions so far that have gone really well, so I'm hopefully uh, going to increase my ability to do this, and I, I'm offering it extremely cheap. So if you look at any kind of online tutoring from a physician, you're probably running yourself $250, $350 an hour. Uh, I currently have it set, and this could increase in the future if I get like an overload of, of students, but right now it's set for basically a dollar a minute. So $30 for a half hour, $60 for an hour. And if you go to freemeded.org slash tutoring, there is a link on there to schedule any tutoring session you want, or they can contact me on social media, um, Chase DeMarco on pretty much everything or free med ed on anything that'll get to me. Um, but the easiest way currently is to go to freemeded.org slash tutoring, and that'll give the different options right now. And I offer a 10 minute free consult just to see like, am I going to be a good fit for you? So we can discuss it for a couple minutes and uh, that one's completely free. And then you could sign up for a 30 or 60 minute session if you think it'll be useful. 
I don't only agree with you uh, on how mentoring and uh, helping someone, it is important, but most of my uh, guests have agreed on the fact that it is remarkably important to have a mentor that is US-based, that has gone through the process and know what it's like to, to take this test and learn in this language, uh, since this is specific to, to my listeners. But uh, mentoring is fundamental. You agree that having a mentor during this process really helps you be successful? I'd say mentorship is definitely mandatory in any sort of quick progression, but also reaching an expertise. Just like Anders Ericsson said in uh, Deliberate Practice and Peak, you need a mentor to really point out the points that you're plateauing on, where you're getting stuck. And it might be hard for you to figure that out on your own. And I do think that, you know, we probably should have said this earlier, but my experience is unique because I came from uh, a family that no one really went to school. I think my dad had the highest degree of education before that, and that was an associate's degree. No one knew anything about medicine. I am kind of a hybrid IMG. I'm a US citizen that went to a Caribbean school. I have a lot of friends in both Caribbean schools and in US schools. So I have kind of a unique experience and insight into IMGs and FMGs trying to get into a US school system and hospital system. So I think um, having that ability and, and going through the process myself and going through it recently, you know, it's different than if you went through it 10, 20 years ago, there's been a lot of consistent changes. So for a mentor, you might want to find someone that not only has been through these, but either keeps up with the information or there's some way for you to assess their abilities to help you in the current market as it is. You touch a, a topic that is very close to me and it's about FMGs and IMGs. For me, there is a clear distinction. The American Medical Association kind of groups foreign and international medical graduates under the IMG group. But for me, a foreign medical graduate is someone like me, born in Colombia, went to school in Colombia, studied of medicine outside the United States and came into the U.S., you are a U.S.-born uh, citizen that went to medical school in the Caribbean and came back. So the question goes, how do you feel that being an IMG was perceived? Do you think it was a disadvantage or an advantage, or do you felt that you were at the same level of competition when during this process of take, test taking and potentially getting into a residency training program in the near future? I know that it might be pathology for you. Uh, that's a complicated one. So the difference in IMGs, FMGs versus US student, it's really not being at a disadvantage. If you're talking about just residency, that's a different yes. thing. And I haven't applied there yet. No, no. So I uh, hear that's just on what it has been the process up to this moment. Yeah. So I think IMGs are kind of, and FMGs are following the same process that DO schools did a while back where there was a lot of stigma, but it's been mostly dissipated at this point. And a lot of IMGs and FMGs are kind of following the same thing. The old stereotype that it's going to be more difficult is still probably true, but not nearly to the extent that a lot of people think. What's going to matter a lot more, especially now that we're getting rid of or making step one and pass fail. So that was a way for IMGs and FMGs to really set themselves apart before if you had really high scores, but it was kind of a false marker, I think. So now that that's going to be gotten rid of, my advice would be really focus on uh, good communication skills with staff, with patients, good leadership skills, professionalism, extracurriculars that really show your interest. If you start something like a podcast or create an online course or even do some blogging for medical education blogs out there. You can put them on free med ed. I'm always looking for guest bloggers. 
those types of things will really show your interest more so in the coming years than your step one score did in the past. So I think that's a great way to really differentiate yourself from the pack and show that you have the skills and the abilities to be a good physician in the U.S. So any specific life experiences uh, or final advice that you want to give to our listeners in general about fear, anxiety of test taking, anything specific that you have looked into in that realm of how to deal with the fear and the anticipatory fear of sitting for a test that is so complex and probably what many people have said that it is the worst test with the most sacrifice of your personal lifetime to accomplish it? I have a couple of recommendations and I would agree it's one of the most anxiety provoking things out there. I wouldn't doubt that that has a huge part to play in in the supposed or the current recorded increase in student burnout. So student burnout seems to happen way before physician burnout. But I would say that some things you could do if the test is anxiety provoking, then you can do some things we mentioned in the book, for instance, such as a confident posture. There's an entire thing called imposter syndrome. That's what I was trying to think of. And we all fall into this category to some degree or another, some more so than others. Ironically, it seems to be higher in males than females, which I found uh, not intuitive. But Dr. Amy, can't think of her last name right now. She has a book, Presence, and she writes on imposter syndrome a lot. And something that they did in their studies was just to see if the physical posture of individuals before an interview or before an exam would change their mentality, their mindsets during the physical exam. posture. Yeah. Yes. So it's the body changing the mind, uh, sort of like a lot of people have heard. If you put a pencil between your teeth and it makes you smile, that it's going to going to make you happier. Um, having a confident posture. Amy Cuddy. Uh, there it is, Amy Cuddy. Uh-huh. She speaks about the. Good morning, guys. Hands yes. up, you know, popped up your chest. We're gonna have a fantastic day. We're gonna have pass the USMLE. So, yep. so presence. That's I've an not, amazing book, by the way. It is. I've not been able to get her on the show yet, but uh, you know, Harvard trained, very busy. Um, <laughs> things happen, but yeah, you can do that. That's one thing. So, make sure you have a strong posture, not a weak posture, before a big event, whether that be a test or an interview or anything like that. Obviously, going to visit the place beforehand can help just to mitigate some of the anxiety and not getting lost before getting there. Uh, Another one is sort of a a self-cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think Howard Berg's Uh, discusses this a little in episode five, I believe. And another guest mentioned it later on, but it's basically the ability to, to get into a habit before doing something such as he recommends pinching your thumbnail and listening to calm music before every study session. And then when you pinch your thumbnail outside of the study session or in the testing environment, when you can't listen to the calming music, then you'll be calm again. And I wouldn't say link. It sums you in. Yeah. It links these behaviors to the stimuli. So it's conditional um, behavioral therapy, um, conditioned response. You can implement that. And I wouldn't say to do something that's too relaxing because you don't want to be overly relaxed during the exam. That's actually been shown to be detrimental for some testing environments, but you don't want to be anxiety ridden either. So something that's like alert, but focused. Uh, Do that before or during your practice test and then it might be easier during the test but yeah i definitely suggest checking out presence or uh, we have a couple extra tips in the book that i'm probably forgetting at the moment 
that can just kind of decrease the stress level for those types of events. Fantastic. So Chase, what is the easiest way for my listeners to get a hold of you if they want to follow you? You said that you're pretty much in every platform across the social media. And if they want to learn more about you, where do they need to go? Yeah, the first place I would definitely suggest is going to the Medical Anemonist podcast. If you're listening to this, then you know how podcasts work. So you can download those episodes and get more info. And freemeded.org, freemeded.org is where we have a lot of different links. So you can email us, social media, you can search for it, but it's all on the website too. Going through some website revamps right now. So I apologize ahead of time if anyone goes there and certain pages aren't working right. Web design is not my forte. But look for me, Chase DeMarco, D-I. M-A-R-C-O, not D-E, because a lot of people misspell it D-E. And I'll be happy to advise you in the best I can. I always take any social media or email uh, freely. I get to it when I can. So it might be a few hours, might be a few days before I can get to it. But there's always that ability to reach out to me. And of course, if you want more one-on-one direction and video conferencing, so we can discuss many things in a short amount of time, Go to freemeded.org slash tutoring and schedule a session there. And I want to do a call to action since we are doing this right now, pro bono, non-for-profit, pretty much. We put this information out there for people to kind of create awareness and get better at what you're doing so far. I want you to please visit both of our websites, visit our podcast on iTunes and give us a a five-star review if you think that we deserve it And, and, and leave us a message contact us and remember just share because sharing is caring and uh chase and i spoke uh last week when we initially had our preliminary conversation in potentially offering uh a book one of your books for those listeners and the specific call to action is that dr chase DiMarco has been kind enough to give us a one-time book for free for that follower that will take a screenshot of proof of activity of posting our shows into social media and leaving a review about how you specifically feel about the job that we're doing and the information that we're putting on the web uh, and online for, for you guys. I wouldn't call it free online medical education, but somehow I think once in a while we touch that, that specific niche. Yeah, the the podcasts are free, the blogs are free, a lot of you contact me, that's free information, but some of the newer things that are more time consuming on my part, do you have to have a minimal fee to them? But yeah, let's give away two books and here's what we'll do. People that go and leave reviews on both of our shows, just screenshot that review and send it to us. Email it to either one of us or send it on social media and you'll be entered in a giveaway and then we'll give away two books. It'll be chosen at random to whoever does both of those. Awesome. Perfect, Chase. Let me tell you, it's been a pleasure. I hope that this is not the last uh, interview that we ever have you uh, here with me, but I bet we're going to have a lot of uh, questions coming and following up. And I hope that the message that we're offering helps our foreign medical guys and why not our local uh, medical students in the U.S., and how to approach and, and get to your side to get the information that they need to be successful. Yeah, Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. God bless you. You too. Take care. Awesome.